Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, I'm Dr. Robert Pearl, former CEO of the Permanente Medical Group, Kaiser Permanente, a Stanford Medical and Business School professor, a Forbes contributor and best-selling author of the book Mistreated, Why We Think We're Getting Good Healthcare and Why We're Usually Wrong. And I am Jeremy Kaur, host of the New Books in Medicine podcast. American healthcare is broken. Across the United States, there are over 200,000 patient deaths from medical error every year, growing physician burnout, outdated technology, and inconvenient and delayed care for patients. And on top of all of this, skyrocketing drug prices and increasingly unaffordable out-of-pocket patient expenses. For decades, our nation's political and medical leaders have talked about fixing the American healthcare system, and yet the problems are now greater than in the past. Every other industry that is inefficient and ineffective has experienced disruption. Healthcare will be no different. The question is whether the solutions will come from inside the healthcare system or be imposed on it. We'd like to invite you to listen to our new podcast, Fixing Healthcare with Dr. Robert Pearl and Jeremy Kaur. Each episode will feature one of the top leaders and innovative thinkers in healthcare today. The show's format is simple. The guests will present a roadmap for fixing American healthcare's biggest problems. And from there, Jeremy and I will scrutinize the plan and help listeners separate fixes that have the potential to succeed from simply the hype. Our goal is that everyone from healthcare consumers to political and medical leaders will find value in the discussions on our show. You may not agree with the different solutions offered, but you will never again conclude that nothing can be done. We hope you will join us. Please subscribe via iTunes or your favorite podcast software. For more information, visit our website at www.fixinghealthcarepodcast.com. Welcome to New Books in Medicine, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Dana Greenfield, a resident physician in pediatrics at UC San Francisco. Today, I speak with the authors of a book called What's Making Our Children Sick, about how chemicals in our food supply may be making us, and in particular, our kids, chronically ill. In it, pediatrician Dr. Michelle Perrault and medical anthropologist Vincent Adams team up to tackle this complex and often controversial topic. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Medicine. I'm Dana Greenfield, a host on the channel. And today I'm speaking with Dr. Michelle Perrault and Vincent Adams about their newest book, What's Making Our Children Sick? How Industrial Food is Causing an Epidemic of Chronic Illness and What Parents and Doctors Can Do About It. Thank you guys for joining me and welcome to the show. Thank you, Dana. Thanks for having us. Yes, thank you, Dana. I was wondering if we could start um, by both of you telling us about your own backgrounds um, and how you developed your respective expertise. Uh, certainly, I, I can jump in and start that conversation. Um, I'm a pediatrician, a pediatric emergency physician by training and later becoming an integrative pediatrician. And I've been doing it now for almost four decades of my life 
And I ventured into the waters and put my toe in of integrative health with um, various episodes, including the health of my own children um, and the health of our planet, getting involved with a group of moms here in our county in uh, Northern California regarding pesticides. And because of that work and uh, serendipity, mostly, nothing uh, more than that, just a lot of luck, I figured out um, that the relationship between health and our guts was prominent and um, particularly in relation to GMOs and their associated pesticides. And it's been a 12-year journey for me um, until, again, I had the serendipitous encounter of meeting um, my incredible friend and colleague, uh, Dr. Adams. So very short answer, but that's that's kind of how I, how I started this journey. And, and so from my side, I, um, you know, I met Michelle about five, a little over five years ago now, I think it was. And, and we started taking walks, actually. We live near one another. And I started to hear more and more about what she was doing. I learned she was an integrative pediatrician, which I found really intriguing. She started to tell me about how she worked with kids who have chronic disorders who weren't getting the kind of care they needed uh, from their uh, mainstream doctors. And a lot of what she was saying really overlapped for me, you know, because I have a PhD in medical anthropology. I was sort of, uh, you know, reared in my intellectual life on the critiques of Western medicine and particularly around the heavy reliance on pharmaceutical solutions as opposed to more basic solutions and also around the problems of, uh, of our medical system not adequately really dealing with chronic health disorders. So there were all these overlaps in the conversation that I thought was really intriguing. I mean, to be honest with you, when she was talking about GM foods, I was really pretty skeptical at first. Um, I really had just assumed that the the controversy was among a, a very small group of of really sort of people out on on the far edges <laughs> of of sanity, and that it was a conspiracy theory. And then I started to really listen to carefully to what she had put together through her own research on why there might be connections between at least the pesticides but also the GM foods themselves and these chronic disorders, this increase in chronic disorders. And so I kind of approached the idea. I had been thinking, oh, God, it would be great to write a book about her topic. You know, this is really interesting. And I learned that she had been wanting to write a book for many years. And I, so I sort of jumped into it from my side as, a, as a, almost like an ethnography. Um, and I know you know, so I, you know, I went, we, I set up interviews with her patients. We interviewed a bunch of people, got the stories about what was going on. Um, I shadowed her in her clinical office. And then I jumped into the very controversial science and gradually became convinced that this is really a, an important book that needs to be written. And uh, I know your series focuses on academic books. We actually did this book as a trade press book, even though it has a very academic feeling to it. <laughs> um, but we just really, I just felt like it was an important project that this question of how food is related to health uh, did have some resonance with me in my last uh, bigger project on Tibetan medicine, which is a, a kind of medicine that believes food is the first starting point uh, for diagnosis and for treatment. And, and so I thought, well, they're really, we really should look at this more carefully at how our food supply may be undermining our children's health more widely. 
And it's been a great project. Thank you for that. I really uh, want to dig into all the specifics with regards to what toxins you guys are talking about, what chronic illnesses uh, you're talking about, and then from the anthropological side, um, the kinds of models of diseases that you're trying to push against. Uh, but I want to pause for just a moment and ask um, Michelle if she could elaborate a little bit uh, for audience what it means to be an integrative physician and an integrative pediatrician. Certainly. So most of most of us are trained in a traditional or Western medical model, which is basically most medical schools in the U.S. and and we have a very set curriculum, and that's what we're trained. There is has been since for boy, we certainly didn't invent it. Um, integrative medicine encompasses a broader palette using um, herbal uh, healing modalities, mind body healing homeopathic healing, and nutraceuticals. So it's in a more comprehensive and a, and a more expansive, yet um, it's just not pharmacologically based. It's not to say integrative practitioners don't use pharmacological means. We certainly do. But we have a much broader toolbox, which is what's required now to manage this onslaught of chronically ill children. There are other terms to use when it first became a thing, so to speak. Um, people were referring it to, to it as complementary and alternative medicine, and I don't like alternative because um, using herbals has been around for you know centuries, and it's certainly not alternative in, in many cultures. It is the main way of treating, as in what Vincent has studied in, in her work. Um, and so many practitioners now use the word functional medicine, which is not my favorite. It's a functional medicine simply means systems biology based medicine so that we use, we see the, um, the, the, the person as a holistic being treating all both their physical symptoms, their mind, body, and the entire package of, of, of person. But functional doesn't do it to me. So I prefer to use the integrative word, integrative medicine. And although I am functionally trained, um, so I, I, I think people can resonate with integrative in a better way. And it's basically the type of medicine that naturopathic physicians study. There is a whole um, school out there of naturopathic providers. They go to ND school. Bastier is a well-known one. Um, and so they, what I have literally trained myself to do is to become a naturopathic physician in essence is what I've done. And so does that give you an idea, Dana, about what it is and how it works? Yeah, that's great. That's great. Um I'm now. I, I want to turn now to uh, the chronic illnesses that you were, that you were seeing and that you continue to see in your clinic. So, who are these kids that you take care of, and what are they sick with? So the kids I care for are kids who mostly have fallen out of traditional uh, practices. There are kids with uh, chronic, complex, hard-to-treat issues. Not all of them are serious issues in the sense of life-threatening. For example, kids who might have chronic eczema, which is a skin condition, um, to kids who have severe autoimmune disease, um, autistic spectrum disorder, and, and really severe health issues. And But they're, they are um, often a denominator for a lot of the kids I treat are parents who've gotten frustrated um, or marginalized in a traditional system, and we're looking for solutions to, as well as root causes to the nature of what's making their kids sick, and not just suppressive um, symptom-based uh, treatments, which is what Western medicine is based on. So parents really want to get to the root cause. 
What I started seeing, in the, particularly in the past 10 to 15 years, was, I would say, a mushrooming of complex, chronically ill children, um, mostly beginning in the gut, everything from chronic abdominal pain to reflux to chronic constipation, all those are super common issues, to chronic food allergies and um environmental allergies and asthma to more serious issues regarding the neurocognitive function, such as um, ADHD, autistic spectrum disorder, various kinds of mental health issues from anxiety to depression and various dysomnias where kids don't sleep well to autoimmune disease. And we are seeing a rise in autoimmune disease as well. Um, I saw mostly kids with thyroid-based autoimmune disease, such as Hashimoto's, as well as ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease. And I have very few kids with cancer because there aren't as many children with cancer, although it's rising as well. So the spectrum of illness, oh, and please let me not forget, chronic infectious diseases such as Lyme and their associated co-infections were a significant part of my practice. So these were the kids. I often treated their parents. 50% of my uh, practice were adults and even grandparents. So um, I witnessed intergenerational health care. And um, once I treated the kid, I had a better understanding of their parents and the grandparents. So it was this enormous swath of uh, health issues, uh, various families and backgrounds, and an array of health disorders. Those were my patients. And you mentioned that they often come to you after they've exhausted a lot of other um, conventional physicians or conventional approaches. Um, I was wondering, Vinciana, if you could talk a little bit about um, maybe these competing um, paradigms of medicine um, that you are trying to challenge a little bit and about how maybe the existing models of diseases aren't really... um, getting the full picture or maybe meeting the needs of these kids and their families? Sure. I mean, for me, I would say, you know, I mean, it's amazing what goes on in the world of medicine, actually. And I was so intrigued by Michelle's practice. And I really did feel after interviewing a lot of her patients that the path she was on was really helping parents and children in ways that uh, they weren't they weren't getting uh, from their ordinary doctors. Um, for instance, they would be, you know, for massive eczema over large portions of the body, just be given more and more serious steroid treatments. Um, you know, a lot of analgesics, a lot of uh, steroids, a lot of, of psycho, psycho um, actually uh, psychopharmaceutical treatments for things that, you know, the parents felt weren't really getting at the root cause of the problem. They were kind of putting band-aids on the problems. And, and by one way or another, you know, Michelle would figure out what was going on by looking at an array of things that I had never really heard talked about in regular in mainstream medicine. And I will say that I think some of the things that we talk about in the book are becoming more mainstream. I actually do believe that the whole paradigm of medicine is is probably going to change rather quickly with the onset of the microbiome in the same way that things changed with the discussion of gen- genetics. Um, that is a lot and not enough <laughs> change, that is. Um, but I feel like um, what happened was Michelle would take these patients into her office and then she would ask them to do food diaries to figure out exactly what the children were eating over time and what how that coincided with symptoms 
and flare-ups. She would figure out through blood tests and stool tests and urine tests and um, uh, various other tests for allergies what the kids were having reactions to uh, in terms of what they were eating. She figured out if they had toxicants in their body um, from exposure to different things, from pesticides all the way to heavy metals and other things. And then she would work on figuring out ways to get rid of those things from the body, stopping the foods that were causing flare-ups and that sort of thing. I mean, this is after, and she, she, she can tell you better than I, but this is just from what I witnessed. Um, she would figure out a way to get rid of the toxicants and to heal the gut because often what she figured out what was going on is that their guts were impaired. And once the gut is impaired, then digestion isn't occurring properly. And once digestion is not occurring properly, children aren't getting the nutrients they need to function properly. And things are getting into the bloodstream that don't belong there. And it causes inflammation and chronic inflammation in various ways. So there are various theories of um, disease, let's call it, or um, disability in some sense that are emerging now in mainstream medicine as well, but they haven't taken root yet. And, and this is partly because it just takes a long time to move the engines of changing clinical practice guidelines. But one of these is uh, something called dysbiosis, which is the idea that because we are made up uh, largely of microbes, in addition to our own DNA, we have anywhere from 10 to 90% uh, uh, genes from microbes that live in our bodies in various ways. And the most important of those microbial environments is our gut. Um, that because those microbes can be disrupted by, get this, things that we eat or toxicants that we eat, you can get syndromes of, of an, an unfortunate imbalance of good, uh, of bad bacteria more than good bacteria. And that can create problems with digestion. We also talk about in the book uh, this theory of leaky gut, which again is not mainstream per se, and uh, most doctors aren't taught much about it yet, but I do think it's going to change. We follow the work of a Harvard professor named Alessio Fasano, who writes about the increasing incidence of celiac-like symptoms in a lot of people who don't necessarily have the DNA uh, basis for celiac disease. And we have tried to connect the dots between the ingestion of foods that are causing problems in the gut with the onset of persistent problems of leaky gut or increased intestinal permeability and the sequelae that come from that, which includes, as I said, more things in the bloodstream that shouldn't be there, immune responses that are chronic and, um, and yet with an immune system that is impaired because it's not uh, fortified with nutrients that it needs um, and the minerals and other things that are needed for healthy bodies. So those are the things that we talk about in the book. Um, we kind of thought of it as a, an attempt to connect the dots between what we do know um, from integrative medicine, what research scientists are finding out um, about what goes on in the microbiome and in disorders of the, of the gut, and then um, uh, to the food system that is that could be one of the causes, not the only, but one of the causes of creating these problems. One thing that really stood out to me um, that I thought was important, uh, in addition to all the really uh, great detailed science that you guys go through, um, was how much families, um, the, the kids, but in particular the parents, felt really seen, um, you know, often for the first time, just really seen and understood. Um, by your work in your clinic. And I, I just want to say that uh, that seemed to be really important um, 
for the families, but also just as a, a message to take away from the kind of work you were doing. I want to um, switch now to just digging in maybe to a case or two uh, and get a sense from you, Michelle, about how you did approach a typical patient. Um, you know, in the beginning of the book, you had a number of cases to, that were an exam, examples of how you did this. I, I think there was Sean, who was a three-year-old who had extensive eczema all over their body that you alluded to. Um, there was Trevor, Trevor, that was also a very notable case of a nine-year-old who had um, ulcerative colitis and very early exposure to a lot of antibiotics in life. Um, and I wanted to know if you could walk through, like, when you first saw these patients, um, how you approached them clinically? Like what were their presenting symptoms and how did you think about their workup um, and the questions you asked and the tests mm -hmm. that you thought to order? So, you know, you follow the same paradigm of uh, history, an excellent history, which will often allude, you know, will, will can be elusive, but will often lead to the correct diagnosis. Your um, physical exam, which I can't stress enough, and so many practitioners are actually getting away from a physical exam, which is just shocking and horrifying. Laboratory data, which is an adjunct which does never takes away from your history and your exam. It's supplemental. And then you, you draw your conclusion based on all those various factors. So when I do my history, they're thorough. And they start with the history of the present illness. And we go through, why is that family there? What, what, what really motivated them to bring that child in? The interview is long. It takes anywhere from one to two hours. Um, they average about an hour and a half. And so I just start with... What's causing the problem? And for many children, it might start with simple abdominal pain. For others, they're brought in because of school failure and, and parents saying, okay, our kid is failing out of school. It could be, and it could be something totally peripheral to what the true nature of the issue is, such as, um, you know, um, where, you know, where my child is, I'm having um, anxiety. And that may not be the root cause of what the issues are. Like, for example, anxiety can be leading to a gut issue. So you start with that chief complaint. And from then you start going through the past medical history. We start going through and I start linking and I go through all the symptoms and I get a very detailed history about every issue that they bring up. So, for example, let's say um, I have a kid such as the child with the eczema, right? that we talk about in the book. And so I would find, when did it start? What was the kid eating when it started? Were there any temporal factors that caused it to start? What was the emotional health of the child when it started? Was there anything else going on in the family, birth of a sibling, a divorce, anything that could cause an emotional change or something called ACEs, adverse childhood experiences, which can um, cause changes in, in um, the illness? Um, I might go through um, associated symptoms. So, for example, you need to know that eczema um, is an atopic disease related to asthma and allergic rhinitis and other allergies. So you start asking about any history of asthma or other allergic symptoms. Um, family history is crucial. Mom's history, dad's history, certainly. The pregnancy history is crucial as well, and the birth history. Then you get into bottle feeding. I get into um, any reactions from anything during the first year of life, whether it be from nannies, um, siblings, or uh, vaccine reactions. So I get all this data together. And then from this data, I start to look at where could potentially of this issue be the root cause. So let's say we're dealing the simple issue, just eczema. There's nothing else going on. 
on. This is not a kid on the spectrum. This is not a kid with asthma. We're just dealing with eczema, but it's severe eczema, like the type we talk about of our young man in the book, which is can be eczema, can be a very painful pruritic with itchy condition, which can also have associated side effects such as a super infection. So people say, oh, just eczema. Whoa, 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 just eczema. That can be a pretty profound and tricky issue. So if I know I'm dealing with eczema, I know I'm dealing with a food issue. It's a food um, allergy or intolerance. And Vincent and I spent a lot of time going about this in the book. And I start looking to think about why would this kid might have a food sensitivity? And I'll start thinking about which ones are the most common. Those tend to be dairy and gluten. Um, And I start my evaluation from the gut. In integrative medicine, we often begin with the gut. Hippocrates said it himself. I don't think um, I'm original in that concept. And so look in the gut. And then I'll look at things that um, traditional practitioners don't look into. I'll look for evidence of severe food allergies, which they do look into, low-grade food uh, intolerances and insensitivities. I'll look at uh, whether this kid could be potentially celiac. I'll look at nutrient levels. I'll look at certain SNPs for genetic variants. And then one of my favorite tests to do is to look at the microbiome to see what um, of the layout of that child's microbes can be affecting this kid's health. And that's where I start. So I, I kind of get a historical lay of the land. I do my very thorough physical exam, looking for physical findings that would corroborate my, the, the patient's story, lab data, Focusing, let's say, in the kid with um, the, with the uh, skin issues, I'm looking at what I label the, um, in terms of the food arena and the microbiome, and then I start a treatment plan. So can you elaborate on what the role is um, of the microbiome in the gut uh, in terms of um, affecting the immune system or causing these diseases or contributing to them? Can you tease that apart for us? Sure. So the microbiome is inherited on the from the mom's side for the uh, the birth canal. So the baby acquires mom's vaginal microbiome, and that microbiome has been passed on through generations. Whatever happened to her and her mother, it affects that that infant. And so the microbiome um, is in, it's also um, the uterus is not sterile, that there is a microbiome um, happening in the, in, in, even in the fetus in utero. So when the baby is born, passes through this uh, vaginal birth canal, that microbiome from mom um, begins seeds of uh, the baby and talks to the baby's thymus, which is the immune gland that sits behind the sternum, on producing something called their innate immunity, because we have two uh, immune systems in our body innate and adaptive. And so those microbi- those organisms, which make up this collection of organisms called the microbiome, now considered an organ in its own right, start to dictate immune function, which is both T cell and B cell um, as well, um, uh, and, and how that baby's immune system is going to look. So that's how that microbiome starts. Now, there are things that that baby receives that can alter that microbiome. And the alteration in this microbiome can then affect health because the microbiome is not only responsible for immune health, but it's also responsible for detoxification, the production of certain vitamins such as uh, folate, uh, vitamin K, K1. Um, And so, um, and as well as signaling 
other uh, microbial organisms in other parts of the body. There is this huge communication that goes on between our microbial symbiotic life um, called quorum sensing. They have literally a chat room going on where they're telling each other what needs to be done. So when there are disruptions, whether they're from whatever the baby that is bottle fed um, receives antibiotics, receives antibiotics in the baby's diet that's fed um, medications because drugs beside antibiotics can also affect the microbiome, that there are these disruptions cause changes and dysbiosis as Vincent referred to prior. And this dysbiotic microbiome can then shift the baby's health. And this microbiome, which is kept in a very tight balance, can take a different pathway. And we now know that certain organisms are linked to certain diseases, whether it's eczema, diabetes, rheumatoid arthritis, that there are links, and and actually autism, between certain um, organisms and diseases. And now this is all changing literally as we speak. Every time I Google microbiome, I get more literature and Oh my gosh, it's it's just constantly evolving. So, um, and so by understanding the microbiome and and helping the baby shift their microbiome, you can affect health outcome. It's profound. So that is, I hope, I think I, I try to answer that, Dana. Um, if you have any questions, I can further elucidate on that. But that will give the listeners and you a lay of the land of the microbiome. So I think a lot of people are becoming more and more aware of probiotics, meaning um, ingesting the quote unquote good bacteria, whether that's from things like fermented foods like yogurt or sauerkraut or from actually a supplement. Um, But are there other things that you ask your patients to do or you do for them that um, help realign their microbiomes? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. So um, you want to um, nourish a microbiome and there are certain foods that feed the microbiome. And for example, there are um, different um, things and proteins and and, and maternal and breast milk that are there only for the microbiome that the baby actually can't use. It's an amazing design. So you want to, you need to have a fiber filled diet because you think you have to think about what food you want to feed the microbiome. So fiber filled foods, for example, legumes, beans, um, um, are good foods for the microbiome. You want to have, um, you don't want to eat a lot of sugar because sugar can produce, um, increase the growth of certain microbial organisms over others. And certain organisms, such as yeast, for example, crave sugar. So sugar is, as we know, not a health food. Um, so we want to reduce sugar intake. Um, you want certain nutrients um, in there um, to kind of support it. And you want to decrease um bacterial, antibacterials, whether they come in the form of hand soaps, um, antibiotics, um, and actually other medications as well, as much as possible. So to support because uh, the microbiome, because certain organisms, particularly the beneficial bacteria, such as lactobacilli, and are very sensitive organisms, and they can be die off easily, particularly by glyphosate, which Vincent and I, we sure go into that in the book which is an antibiotic in itself. So unless a kid is um, eating an organic diet, which most kids are not, the glyphosate residual in their food um, can also be affecting their microbiome. Now, I've asked this question a million times to myself. How much glyphosate does it take to affect the microbiome? Not been studied. 
um, in humans, although that may be changing soon. Um, and we don't know how much. So certain individuals might um, be more sensitive to glyphosate and the effects of um, that that herbicide, which is essentially in everything, and certain individuals less sensitive. So um, I think this is why um, you know it is so important to eat the spectrum, eat the rainbow, and to eat organic. And correct me if I'm wrong, but but. Um the microbiome con- or the, its breakdown contributes to leaky gut that you guys were talking about before, correct? But it's not it's not it's not the whole story. So can you um, maybe talk a little bit about what leaky gut is and how that contributes to some of the chronic illnesses that you're seeing? Mm-hmm. So what leaky gut is, or also known as intestinal permeability, is where there are there is improper closing of the lining of the cells, which is only really one cell layer thick of the epithelial lining. So that lining is modulated by something called zonulin protein, and it should be opening and shut in certain responses. But what happens with leaky gut, there's an alteration of a bacterial layer that sits on the epithelium where there are disruptions in this um, in this lining. It's not responding as it should be, and that it's leaky, where that um, incompletely uh, digested foods, for example, uh, microbial toxins that are in everything we eat, right? We're constantly eating microbes from our world and toxicants, the things, the plastics, the parabens, you know, all the stuff that we're ingesting, inhaling, or what have you, entering our bodies is passing through this one cell layer, epithelial layer inappropriately. And your bloodstream and the immune cells that are just right there on the other side, I mean, it's all quite close, are seeing a lot of these um, foreigners as foreigners. And they're mounting an immune response, which is creating low-grade chronic inflammation, which appears to be the root cause and a common denominator of so much of illness that we're seeing. So this intestinal permeability looks like it can be caused from the genetic modification process itself based on the work of Dr. Arpad Pusti, who showed that there were intestinal disruptions. It can be um, based on glyphosate as an antibiotic, disrupting the normal microbes that lay that line that epithelial layer. And it can also be um, these intestinal disruptions can be caused from the pesticides, uh, the GMO pesticides themselves. In what way? Hard to know exactly. So this assault on the lining is happening. We can measure this intestinal permeability by measuring zonulin levels. There's a a lab that does it. And or we can also look at indirect measurements of intestinal permeability by checking the markers of chronic low-grade inflammation, which is IgG, which you can measure in blood, IgA, and um, actually also IgE, which are um, all immunoglobulins. So these can be measured in laboratory um, findings. You could also do various breath tests for other conditions. It gets a little more complicated and look for things like SIBO, which is, it gets a little more complicated, but that's the basis. So it appears when, when I was practicing um, at my last job at the Institute for Health and Healing, of this complex chronic um, uh, children of these, of my patients that I was seeing, about 95% had evidence of intestinal permeability. And that is what was shocking to me. And what is equally shocking is that most practitioners, pediatricians, are not thinking about this problem, are not trained to think about it, and aren't looking for it. So we have a whole sea 
of kids walking around with intestinal permeability, leaky gut, um, with the, with the sequelae and the endpoint of chronic inflammation, which leads to a whole host of other issues, and it's not being identified, particularly in the Western mm-hmm. model. That's really fascinating. And, and to be honest, it, it sounds pretty overwhelming. Um, uh, I want to turn now to the toxins that you uh, alluded to. You started to talk about uh, herbicides and pesticides. Um, what are uh, what are these toxins um, that we're talking about? And and actually, I'd like to start uh, with you, Vincent. You know, you start by talking about how we're in a, a current era that you called the second silent spring. What do you mean by that? Uh, yeah. Well, first of all, I wanted to correct that we're not talking about toxins in the book. We're talking about toxicants. Toxins are naturally occurring uh, 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 poisons and toxicants are chemical poisons. So yeah, we do have a chapter called The Second Silent Spring. And in that chapter, we try to trace out the history of the development of and our turn to the use of genetic modifications in agricultural systems. And one of the things that um, we point to is how we're trying to walk a fine line between being blanket critical and being sensitive to the fact that, you know, mistakes have been made in the past, and we need to correct for them now instead of assuming that we have to live with them still. So in the era of DDT, everyone was very worried about exposure to toxic chemicals through our agricultural system, and there was a big movement to eliminate them. Well, before that response, there was something called um, an herbicide called glyphosate that had been sort of in the system and and was discovered and was thought to be a good solution to the problem uh, of DDT because at the time, um, glyphosate was a known, it was actually discovered as a chelator and then uh, soon after was discovered to be useful on killing plants because it was a broad spectrum herbicide. Um, and of course, there's a difference between DDT. DDT kills insects and glyphosate kills plants. Nevertheless, in the world of agricultural and agrochemical companies that were at this time ascendant in the U.S. from the the 40s onward, the effort to try to find less toxic forms of weed management and insect management was um, being pursued. And one of these these ingredients, one of these um, chemicals called glyphosate, um, was discovered and thought to be less harmful to humans um, because it worked uh, to kill enzymes that were only found in plant cells. And that, um, in that chemical called glyphosate was developed and turned into a, a pesticide called Roundup. And everybody knows about Roundup now and it's widely used, has been widely used for many years. Well, it turns out by the 1970s, companies like Monsanto we're trying to f- hire people who knew about insect endocrinology in order to create plants that could contain, um, well, going down two different pathways. They, de- they hired endocrinolo- insect specialists and chemical specialists who could develop, figure out ways of using what were coming on the market in bioscience more generally um, the use of genetic modification technologies to modify plants so that they could either contain a pesticide that would kill insects that ate plants or that could be used to protect plants from the spraying of Roundup. 
So the two kinds of, of genetic modified, genetically modified foods and technologies that we focus on in the book are the kinds that were designed to uh, create Roundup-ready crops. These are crops that are designed to withstand the exposure to the spraying of Roundup. And of course, how does glyphosate work? Well, as I said, it kills non-Roundup-ready plants by disrupting a pathway which is needed for the plant's production of its own amino acids. And initially, scientists assumed that this would not affect humans because human cells don't use this pathway. Again, the human cells don't have this thing called the shikimate pathway. We do know now, however, that our microbes do use the shikimate pathway. And so the question is, what is the impact that this glyphosate is having on our own microbes in our gut? We argue that it's probably fairly significant. Again, as Michelle alluded to, we don't have much information about it because we've never tested these things. The other kind of um, technology that was developed was something called um, the use of Bacillus thuringiensis, which is a toxin, actually. It's a naturally occurring toxin. And it was developed into a technology that could be inserted into plants to resist insect pests. Now, how does it work to kill insect pests? And again, this is the technology that did enable us to reduce the use of things like DDT. So how does it work? Well, it actually, certain insects that eat plants that have this bacillus thuringiensis or what's called BT toxin inserted into its DNA will eat it and then it will create holes in the lining of the insect gut allowing for a kind of septicemia and the insect dies by that pathway. Again, the assumption initially was that this would not be effective on humans because human guts have a, have a, a higher, uh, a lower pH. They're more acidic than insect. Sorry, human guts have a I always get this backward. Human guts have a lower p, a higher pH. Sorry, a lower pH. They're more acidic than insect guts. We know now, though, that the actual bacillus, the the, the uh, protein that's used, the cry protein that's generated from the BT insertion, is actually pre-activated in the plants where it's where it's inserted. So a lot of the plants that we're eating that have been modified in this way contain this protein pre-activated protein. And the question of whether it's also having an impact on our guts is something we don't know very well. But Michelle can actually give you more information about this. We do know, and we go into this in some detail in the book, um, from animal studies that it looks like there are very serious impacts from this as well. So we call it a second silent spring because in fact, we've subtly been exposed to, even when the companies that produce these are telling us that we've reduced the need for pesticides and we've created food systems that are safer than ever before. Um, and we've become entirely dependent on these technologies to grow our food. I will say that. I mean, we, and the increases in the amount of it that we're using are, are incredible. Something like an increase in 240 fold over the last decade in the use of glyphosate alone. So we've all been lulled into thinking that we have safer foods than ever, when in fact we're being exposed to toxicants in higher rates than ever before. And so we're really witnessing an epidemic in the consumption of these foods. So what do we know about the effect on humans? Well, we know very little. Um, the GMOs have not been studied in humans, period. Um, BT toxin, there's only two human studies on BT toxin, and they're marginal studies. They're not like hardcore studies. And we have no human studies on the effect of GMOs and their associated pesticides because when you remember, when you eat a genetically modified 
corn, for example, you eat it with the pesticide, you don't eat them separate. And so we have no human data. Now, we have some glyphosate data, we have um, uh, in urine, we know what urinary levels are. For example, there was a great Midwest study out of JAMA um, about a year ago that looked at um, pregnant women in Indiana, and 90% of them had glyphosate um, in their urine. But how it correlates to health, there's no data. So we've been eating this product and there's these claims, these, these spurious claims that um, they don't affect health, that, they, that they're fine for health and that there's no um, downside are based on no information, which is quite frightening if you think about it. And so we do have rat data. We've, we have information on rats, pigs, cows and chickens. And the best data I've seen on the effect of GMOs and um, Roundup uh, uh, corn and soy is from the work of Dr. Judy Carmen and uh, farmer Howard Vlieger. And they looked at pigs. And why that's important is pigs have a very closely uh, related intestinal tract to humans. And in this amazing pig study that um, Dr. Carmen and, and, Dr. and Mr. Vlieger did is that the pigs that consumed the GMO and uh, pesticide diet had significant elevations of intestinal permeability. And when you look at the gross pathology and you actually see what these uh, guts look like, it's pretty horrifying and it's very e- easily to see, even for a non-physician or a non-pathologist to see the differences of the, of the inflammation. It's quite remarkable. So we can extrapolate that data into humans um, and saying and, and, ex- and exercise the precautionary principle saying we have a significant issue in animals. This food should be halted until it's studied in humans. This is not a big stretch. So where are the regulatory agencies in all of this? I mean, there is an FDA, uh, there's an EPA, there's a USDA. Um, what role, if any, do they have in monitoring our food supply? Uh That's a really good question. And we do go into that in some more detail in the book. Um, One of the interesting things that I found in pursuing this is that the FDA doesn't really regulate our food. What they do regulate is what they perceive of as um, uh, toxicants that get into the food or toxins, natural toxins that get into food. And they monitor drugs. And all of those drugs are tested on humans. Well, because these foods, these genetically modified foods, were early on classified as generally as the same as uh, non-modified foods. And this was a coup carried out on the part of the industry. It was a public relations coup, actually, to get them classified this way. And this was against numerous reports from some of the scientists who worked on it that it should not be classified that way. Nevertheless, because it was classified that way, it was classified then as generally recognized as safe, G-R-A-S. It's an it's a acronym that's used to describe GM foods uh, and classifies them as the same as regular foods. And because the FDA doesn't, re- doesn't test regular food, um, unless it, there's some suspicion about it being contaminated, it didn't test any of the, the, uh, pesticide, the uh, GMO foods. Now, the EPA is another agency that you'd think could regulate these. And in fact, they are responsible for regulating pesticides, especially if they have been known to be shown toxic. But it seems like the GMO food, um, pesticides related to GMO foods slip through the regulatory cracks for a variety of reasons. 
And this is in addition to the fact that the EPA doesn't really do any of its own testing. It really relies on industry tests to decide whether or not they should regulate something. And so in the case of GMO foods, pretty much the only agencies producing information were from the industry. Finally, the USDA doesn't regulate food for humans. It only regulates food for animals and only cares about foods that it perceives of as being a threat to livestock populations or poultry populations. And so GMO foods, because they were basically clustered in as feed in the same way that our, they were clustered into our food as generally recognized as safe, they also were not tested. The only thing that's regulated is the pesticide itself. And it, of course, the foods that have been modified with BT are actually pesticides and you can look through the studies on this and you can see how they've been able to say, the industry has been able to say that there is no evidence that these are harmful. So again, there are a number of good books that interested readers could go to to look at the history of these, these cracks that occur, the, the, the gaps in the regulatory system. Uh, one of them is by a man named Stephen Drucker, who wrote a book called Altered Genes, Twisted Truths. Another one is called Whitewash by... Um, Carrie Gillum, uh, that talks about the way that the industry itself actually obstructed the ability for scientists to pursue more regulation of these and more safety testing of these foods. And it was a bit of a shock for me. I mean, like I said, I started out as a bit of a skeptic, and it, it wasn't long before I realized that the ways in which truth on GM foods have been obfuscated is an amazing story in our country. And, um, you know, it's just really, it's a sad story. Um, there are many great scientists who have, whose lives and careers have been ruined by the fact that their papers that had been published were forced to be retracted because of pressure from industry. And um, so anyway, it's created a big predicament <laughs> in which we're now being, uh, being allowed to eat foods that we really don't know uh, much about in terms of their health mm -hmm. impacts. Um, what would you say to people who would claim that, you know, it's been many decades since we've been using these uh, herbicides and pesticides um, and they haven't caused harm? So why concern now? Why would we see a rise in these chronic illnesses in the last 10, 15 years? Well, I mean, Michelle can jump in too, but I mean, I would just say starting right off the bat, we haven't been eating them for very long. The first generation to get these are the kids that were born in the 90s, and we are seeing sicknesses among those kids. They have rates of mental health disorders. They have rates of chronic disorders that are really higher than ever before. I would also say that a lot of the adults who started eating them later in life, are sh uh, this, the impacts for, on them too are showing up in the form of cancers. And we do know that even with the case of glyphosate, which is the active ingredient in Roundup, we recently had uh, an international uh, agency, the International Associ uh, Agency for um, Research on Cancer in Europe, uh, classified uh, glyphosate as a probable carcinogen, meaning that it does cause cancer in animal tests, um, and they just haven't done the tests on humans yet, so it's called a probable carcinogen. And that has created regulatory ripples down the line, especially in California. But of course, that's being contested now by industry. And they've rolled out new scientists who are saying that those studies weren't done accurately. And they're actually looking at the evidence of tumors or not in these studies. I mean, and it's very vague when you look at the actual pictures. Um, you know, so there's a lot of pushing the truth around that goes on with this. And, and so just to answer your question, I would say the idea that we aren't sick 
and sicker is uh, is spurious. We actually are sick, and we're sick with different kinds of things than we ever have been before. Um, having said that, I would also say that you know the, the one of the things I learned by working with Michelle is that you know people are differently susceptible to being very sick or less sick or not sick at all from the kinds of exposures they get. And this is true for the exposures they get to things like chemicals uh, in the plastics and in the air and in our electronic products, the parabens, phthalates, that kind of thing, the endocrine receptor chemicals. But they're also differently susceptible to the kinds of toxicants that they're likely getting through their foods. And again, we, we aren't saying this is the only source of these problems. There are many sources, but this is probably one. And um, what really it comes down to is how healthy the person is and maybe perhaps how healthy the gut is. So a lot of people can hold and absorb a lot of toxicants without getting super sick for a long period of time. And at some point, for many people, it just tips beyond the scale of, of being uh, you know, healthy and they get sick from them. And that's more true with kids. And I, you know, Michelle's great at describing how this happens more, more swiftly and more severely with kids. Well, I would just jump in here too, Vincent and, and Dana, is that um, the, the, you would answer that question by saying, well, people are sicker. So one out of two American children has a chronic disease now. If you just look at focus on autism, um, it, you know, it, the, the autism curve where it started um, 25 years ago at one in 10,000, now probably at one in 34 boys, one in 68 children is probably now on the spectrum. So people are sicker. We've been eating GMOs and pesticides for over 20 years. And so we now have been eating this stuff every 20 years and we're sicker. What's happened during the course of the 24, over these 22 odd years is that the amounts, because of weed resistance, the amounts of glyphosate that's been allowed in the food supply has been, keeps on creeping up. And um, the um, regulatory agencies keep allowing more and more glyphosate to be allowed into the food supply as um, no, no toxic concerns regarding um, this increased level. So now kids are receiving more than they had previously. And so these um, regulations keep getting relaxed to compensate for the amount of increased spraying that keeps going on because glyphosate is not only used on herbicide tolerant crops, it's used off-label as a desiccant. And some off-label products such as wheat have actually more glyphosate in them than products designed to tolerate glyphosate such as corn, which is called Roundup Ready Corn. So because of the increasing amounts and this change, we are seeing sicker kids and it can be directly linked to the food supply. Most people, and particularly practitioners here, need to you know bear this responsibility, are not making the links between sick food and sick people. Why that's not happening, Vincent and I worked on 260 pages in the book to say that food is medicine. And this relationship needs to be considered first and foremost, particularly in, in your diagnostic category, on what you are eating. And so this may be the cornerstone of this conversation that we need to consider that our sick food is absolutely and directly, not indirectly responsible for our sick population. And by far, it's it's not just the U.S. that's sick because there are other countries that are eating as many GMOs and pesticides as we are, and they are seeing the same increasing trends in, in their own children's health. And we now have a generation of kids for the first time in history that's sicker than the preceding generation. So there have been significant changes in what's happening into, um, into kids' health. 
Um, but people just when people say, "Well, you wrote a kids' book," this as and Vincent has so aptly stated, this also applies to adults. Adults are facing the same sick health issues as our children. They have different types of diseases, certainly, but they also are experiencing um, increasing. Um, there is a health epidemic in adults as well, such as IBS. You can Google that, or how many people take in America are taking Prilosec, which is um, um, which is. I think the number one drug prescribed now in the U.S. So this is this is how I would respond, Dana, to that very query. Yeah, it's really interesting. If you uh, are a television watcher, you know, a television viewer, how many advertisements come on for people to deal with their chronic digestive problems? So, you know, when I hear someone say, well, well we'd all be sick, <laughs> you know, if this were really the case, that our food is is killing us or is hurting us. I say, yeah, well, we have taken care of a lot of the other, the historic pathogens that have come with food, you know, the infectious diseases and bacterial pathogens and that sort of thing. And we've kind of gone to the other side. We're making things so hygienic um, that, that that is becoming a problem for our guts. But but on top of that, we do have to look at the rise in chronic uh, morbidities that that just hover sort of just below the surface. They don't keep people from going to work in many cases, but a lot of people are dealing with these problems and they're on the rise. I want to circle back to um, uh, one thing you mentioned about autism and mental health, because I think, um, you know, it, it might seem more obvious or easy to wrap uh, one's head around when you talk about um uh, food and gut issues or food and digestive issues. But uh, you talk a great deal in the book about the gut-brain connection. Um, and I was wondering if you could elaborate more about that. Like, what is the connection between um, the gut and the brain? And what kinds of mental health issues have you been seeing and treating in your clinic? So there, the gut brain. So the gut brain connection is pretty interesting. There is a system that directly there is a, um, a one of the biggest nerves in your body. The vagus nerve is a nerve that literally goes from your gut to your brain. So when there is intestinal permeability, which we've already covered, and these um, various microbes, toxins, toxicants, what have you, are crossing um, in this inappropriately open space, they are going up into the brain and they're crossing the the blood brain barrier, which is not. And this imperme- unimpermeable substance um, stuff crosses easily across. These substances can activate um, immune cells in the brain called microglial cells, which can cause chronic brain inflammation as well. And what's entering the brain may be the, the various toxins, microbial byproducts called uh, lipopolysaccharides, which are an extremely inflammatory, to various toxicants such as the pesticides and their byproducts. There are some byproducts of glyphosate, such as AMPA, which is probably more toxic than the glyphosate itself. These substances, along with the plethora of toxicants that our children are now being exposed to, and we won't even talk about EMFs in this in this conversation, but if we just want to focus on solvents and plastics and uh, et cetera, causing chemical reactions and changes in brain, and this is causing brain inflammation. Also, dysbiosis is directly linked and I say directly linked, and I feel comfortable saying it now based on the science, to brain disorders because there are certain organisms in the brain that can be linked to various mental health issues. In addition, children now, whether it's because of the collation effects of glyphosate and or the decreased production of certain nutrients in the body or the food that we're eating, this highly processed edible food-like substances that we talk about in the book as written by Michael Pollan, not our original um, 
idea, um, are so nutrient devoid of nutrients that kids are not getting enough nutrients to run these systems. So you now have kids who don't have enough nutrients, B vitamins, uh, C, vitamin D, um, they're impaired and it's producing the uh, various physical health uh, issues we talked about, but the mental health as well. The mental health, the brain is not cut off at the neck as if you have mental health separate from physical health. So issues, if your body is impaired, as we talk about, it will affect brain function. As a matter of fact, if you go to the health food store today, you will see probiotics that say depression and anxiety on them because it has now become hit the mainstream market that probiotics can alter and affect mood. The kind of health issues, uh, mental health issues that we are seeing exponentially increased are depression and anxiety. Um, I believe about 46% of teenagers are now experiencing these disorders, um, as well as um, other mood disorders, the sleep issues. Two out of three kids under the age of 10 now have uh, sleep disorders, which are called dysomnias. Um, so, and eating disorders. I would say the most common things we're seeing are anxiety and depression, and, and then pff, a splattering of other issues as well. So this is sort of kind of a, the quick explanation of what's going on. In the book, um, you have a number of cases where you talk about the, the gut-brain connection. And I found the one about um, Mike, I believe is the name you gave him, um, was quite compelling. Can you tell us about um, how Mike presented to you um, as a teenager and the transformation that he underwent after months and months of treatment? Yes, I can. Uh, Mike presented um, with very desperate parents. Um, they were from a heavily sprayed area in Central California, and he had he came in when he first came in to see I me. Mean, he was um, basically on four various um, psychotropic drugs, and some of them really powerful, like Risperdal and other uh, psychotropic drugs. And he had been on a host of medication. So this kid was essentially being drugged for these violent outbursts and behavioral disruptions that he was having. He was threatening his mom. Um, only his dad could control him. He got thrown out of school. And this, had, this was a kid who had been a normal boy um, prior to you know, um, these episodes beginning when he was about nine or 10 years old. We, through, um, through process of elimination and a lot of testing, found out that he had all sorts of health issues that were underlying um, in addition to these these mental health concerns, he had leaky gut. He had nutrient deficiencies. He had he was pre diabetic with super high levels of um, insulin, um, and um, he was on the track for diabetes. He had um, toxicants in his urine. Um, he had very low uh, nutrient levels of his um, minerals and vitamins, and so he was essentially a mess. He had. We through this the work that we do and then not to go into all the detail which I was the, which I discussed prior, where within nine months we're able to get him off all four drugs, correct his gut, and what we learned is he had a very bizarre and severe violent reaction to certain foods, and they were basically carbohydrates. I had to keep him on a paleo, bit more of a ketogenic diet, and when he followed this ketogenic diet, he became a different. It was amazing. I, I myself was shocked at the transformation of this boy. Not to mention that when he came in, he had severe obesity. 
he had lost about, I think, 40 to 50 pounds, if you can believe that, during the nine months that we started working together. Um, it was transformative. And what we also learned is when he went back to eating those foods, when he would cheat and he was always being the lure of these addictive foods, he would unravel almost immediately to violent behavior. And as he got larger, it became more difficult. So that it was a it was bizarre at best. Um, we were able to figure out the root cause of his issues were these severe food reactions that involved his mental health. And as we corrected these various other issues, um, he just got better and better. Now, it's not to say that at some point during the course of his of his treatment that he might not require some, you know, pharmaceuticals as we move along, because I was always tiptoeing around with this kid and really and also working with both his neurologist and his um, psychologist, as well as his school. There was constant conversations going on between all his health providers. And somehow we brought this kid around. Vincent and I did make a journey out to visit with the family. We spoke with the siblings. Um, they all had various health disorders. And um, Mike himself understood, even at when we met, when we spoke with him, and when he was 14 at this point, I started working with him when he was about 10 or 11, he really understood himself the nature of his issues and that when he, when he ate, quote unquote, bad food, he would unravel. It was quite remarkable. And so these stories that Vincent and I wrote about are upfront, personal, and real. And these are what the types of issues that families are dealing with. This mother feared her life. I mean, so this, I mean, we're not talking about subtle, you know, problems here in school. These were family destroying health concerns affecting families. I mean, it was, Dana, it, it was profound and Mike came around. And so this is um, just one of many of the patients we talk about in the book and, 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 in, and in my practice. So, so oh, go on, Vincent. Well, I was going to add that, you know, one of the interesting things about, um, you know, putting this book together and, you know, collaborating on this is I kept wanting to have the, the linear argument. Oh, they ate this GMO food and it produced this result, right? And it just doesn't work that way. <laughs> and, um, you know, some of the cases that we talk about, it's easy to say about them, oh, well, you clean up anyone's diet and they get better. And, and my reaction to that is, yes, isn't that amazing? <laughs> like, we should all be paying attention to that. But on top of that, there are these links that we try to say, which are very indirect and are multi-causal, that, when we that we have to think about in terms of our medical models, if we're really going to help these kids. And so one, you know, in this case of Mike, is such a dramatic story. First of all, it could be that in some cases, they're going to have to go back to using other psychotropic solutions, you know, if he can't control his behavior and that sort of thing. And he was a kid who just kept going back and forth and really had a lot of impulse control problems. And so even though he knew himself really well, it might have been, you know, in some cases you have to do a combination of things. And Michelle was always clear on this. Sometimes you have to use the antibiotics and the probiotics, and then later the probiotics, and you have to get rid of the food that's causing the problem. And then you have to look at other multiple causal functional sort of relationships in the bodies. For instance, in his case, you know, years of eating packaged foods that are full of GMOs could have really created a, a very hostile environment in his gut that made it hard for him to even benefit from the medicines he was taking. 
And so um, GMO foods are just one piece of the story. Foods in general are a bigger piece of the story. And then thinking about our, how our whole ecosystem is related to our health in a, in a, in like rethinking the medical model is, is a third sort of way of thinking about what we're trying to do. You use a term um, called eco-medicine, um, and it seems to me that, that that's what you were getting at, was trying to create new models and paradigms. Can you tell us more about what you meant by that? Yeah, it's the basic idea that uh, we have to think about how our health is related to the health of the soil. It's sort of like we try to end on a positive agenda. You know, we've been banging our heads. People in the no GMO food movement have been banging their heads against the wall of trying to get rid of GMO foods for years and years and years. And, and really, there it's important to remember that there are positive changes we can make that don't require continuing to bang on that wall, although that would be good to continue to do that. But, you know, so one thing is to think about soil health. And there's a great author who writes about this named Daphne Miller, a book called Pharmacology, F-A-R-M, Ecology. Um, and there are all these organic farmers out there who, uh, and researchers in many departments in many universities who are trying to map the relationships between healthy soil with lots of microbes and healthy food that's full of nutrients and healthy guts that also are full of microbes that need those nutrients from those foods and that need those microbes from the foods. So eco-medicine is this idea in the micro scale of literally needing to map out the relationships between healthy soils and healthy guts. And in the macro scale, it's thinking about how our medical system should be in tune with an environmentally sound pathway for the future. And that generally will lead you away from genetically modified food technologies that rely on heavy amounts of agrochemicals, heavy amounts of fertilizers to supplement soils that have been destroyed, heavy, heavy amounts of seeds that are bought every year because farmers can't harvest their own. And, um, and so for that, you know, to think about how this whole food ecosystem, we really need to rethink how we make our food if we want to have a healthy population is is sort of the bigger story on what we're talking about when we're talking about eco-medicine. That's great. Um, I'm wondering what changes you'd love to see in medical training uh, or medical education to get us there. Uh, I would oh, go ahead, Michelle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, th this is an easy one. Um, um, if, first of all, the inclusion of um, integrative health um, as, as a subject to be studied and the integration of other therapies, including um, herbal therapies, for example, or nutraceutical um, nutrition using supplements, including vitamins and mineral therapies, which have been very effective, very well studied. And we have great orthomolecular literature that we could share. But in addition, um, the... Um, this idea, the not not this farm driven, insurance driven training, where um, there is a problem, you fix it with a drug, and you have ten minutes to do it. We have to get out of this paradigm of quick drive through medicine with a pharmaceutical prescription in your hand to go out the door. It's not what patients want. It doesn't. It's not effective. And this is where the, the shift has to become. To, we need to get pharmaceuticals out of medical schools and to get big business out of funding our, our, our academic centers. 
And we have to untease these relationships that exist in so many medical centers between a business, big business, whether it's pharmaceutical or agribusiness and funding of whether it's academia or research, et cetera. This needs to be teased out so that academics can do independent research. Uh, aside from um, their supporters. And so that would be my wish. There needs to be an overhaul. And there some medical schools are doing it. I mean, this is there, there are shifts happening. I don't believe it's quite fast enough to address the tsunami of illness. And I would add, I mean, I, I think baby steps is a good way to go. I'm trying right now to get an elective class offered in my institution at UCSF. Uh, that would uh, take students who are interested uh, to take a class that looks at food, uh, soil health, food health, and gut health, um, and you know deals with other issues such as social justice and food deserts and those courts and big agrochemical um, you know politics uh, along the way. Um, and you know right now there are a number of medical schools that are looking at things like culinary medicine and that tends to be a focus on how to get people to cook good food more the michael pollan approach you know eat real food um eat things that are dietarily good for you that won't exacerbate your illness or that will help you recover faster for example with cancer patients and and the emphasis is on good cooking skills and good education about what foods you should be eating. But it's kind of limited to that. It doesn't look at the bigger picture of the food system overall and, and what evidence is available that you know some of the foods we're eating really have a problem with low nutrient levels and worse, toxicant levels, uh, such as you know being filled with pesticides or being made into pesticides like the GMOs. And so um, my immediate goal is to get a class offered at the medical school for just for those who are interested. I mean, these topics tend to be relegated to the alternative medicine or integrative medicine centers, which are seen as ancillary to the main project of medical education. And, uh, you know, it would be wonderful if it were more included. And I do, I am hopeful that more research on the microbiome will start changing that conversation and making it more mainstream, although it's not clear how much of it's going to be on food as opposed to sort of micronutrient and phar- nutraceuticals and that kind of thing, which, you know, bring us back to a, a new kind of pharmaceutical investment. So, I mean, it will, who knows where it will go, but I, I firmly believe that baby steps will create a, a small constituency of people that will create seas of change. But right now, I do think that that there are large groups of what we call in the book reluctant constituencies when it comes to the GMO food debate. And I think that it's mostly not because they know very much about food. It's because they're worried about the argument that uh, GMOs are bad. And uh, we're very careful in the book to say we're not saying that GMO technologies are bad. They've been very beneficial in many avenues of medical research, biomedical research, manufacture of certain ingredients in, in um for example, insulin uh, medicines and that kind of thing. But uh, in that case, all of those things are tested thoroughly on humans and foods just kind of um, haven't been tested well. And so my sense is that a lot of MDs in particular, who are, in my view, one of the biggest reluctant constituencies, if they knew more about it, they might be willing to rethink the food issue around genetic modification. And again, the positive path is just to get them to pay attention to what kinds of nutrients are needed in the foods that we have and what, which ones are absent in the foods that we have on the market today. So there's some great research starting up on that and 
you know, it'd be great to get that into everyone's hands. That sounds like a fabulous course. I would have loved to take something like that. And I'm sure there are a lot of people who would be interested as well. Um, I'm wondering, since the book has come out, um, what has the reception been um, within the medical community? Have you had uh, people read it or listen um, to interviews who maybe didn't know much about this before? Um, uh, What's been the reception like? Well, I could I could start that because I've given out a, to quite a few number of pediatricians, um, colleagues, um, and traditional practitioners, and I've had no reaction, zero. For my medical co- colleagues, my MD colleagues who are integrative practitioners already, they've been jumping out of their seat. We've been waiting for this book. Thank you, Vincent and Michelle, for producing this book. Um, we, you know, etc. So it was predictable, in my opinion, what was going to happen. And I actually asked this one pediatric group I work with, um, uh, like, you know, what do you guys think? And um, literally, um, they felt that it didn't apply to what they do. They didn't see the relevance. So I don't think now you, this is anecdotal, remember? Um, So it's going to be a hard battle to get uh, MDs on board. And for those MDs who are already on board, as I mentioned, were, I think, ecstatic with, with, with the product. So that is so far has been my experience just with MDs. I'm not talking about the MDs, the chiropractors for, for that group of patient um, practitioners rather that I, that I work with and I educate, I, I do a lot of lecturing to um, other practitioners. They've loved the book and I've had great receptions when I work with those groups. That's been my experience. I would say, you know, my experience has been that I've had many, many, People tell me that they're buying two copies of the book, one for themselves and one for the, their doctor. And so they're getting it out there. But I, I am like Michelle, I'm a little bit skeptical that it's going to be, uh, you know, it's, it's going to take a certain kind of open-minded uh, physician who is probably dealing with kids with a lot of chronic problems, because this is not... Um, this is not material that they've probably been taught, but maybe it will open them up to going and doing a little more research on their own. And we've offered a lot of guides to that. There's a lot of referencing that goes on in the book. It's not 260 pages of text. It's only 200 pages of, of, of text. And then, and then the rest are references to um, materials that people who are inquisitive can go and, and, you know, read up on their own if they're really curious about it. So I suspect that there'll be some openness to it among the existing, um, you know, practitioner population, even those who aren't already uh, the converted, so to speak. But uh, this is why I think we really, you know, we really need to think about medical education and getting it at least in the hands of the, the people who are coming in. Many of the medical students who've had some of these chronic problems themselves and who are, you know, curious about it and want, want the ability to think outside of the box a little bit. Um, but it's a tough haul. I mean, the, the cynic in me and the, the one who has been looking at these problems in, in medicine for a long time knows that there are huge vested interests in medical education that are organized by uh, various industries, um, not just the research industries, but the pharmaceutical industries, as we write about in the book. And for all the good that pharma has, you know, pharmaceuticals have provided for us in terms of creating opportunities for health in the history of Western medicine, there is also such a strong, uh, almost a stranglehold on uh, the model of, you know, 
what Michelle likes to not very affectionately call pill for ill medicine that, that, you know, it's hard to imagine how, what it would take to change it. Um, there are some, uh, you know, Michelle mentioned nutraceuticals. Well, there are pharmaceutical companies that are getting invested in this too. And that would be better than nothing if, if, you know, they really started investing in gut health in ways that kept guts healthier and, um, you know, focused on the things that people need to get uh, in their gut in order to stay healthy. But our attitude is, boy, you know, food is a really good place to start. <laughs> so we should really be focused on food. <laughs> You know, and then, then, and then there are these issues around how you get food out to everyone. Not everyone can afford. A lot of people live in food deserts. They can't afford organic, and we do. We are aware of that problem. This isn't. We're not naive to think that this is a cure all for everybody immediately. Those are bigger issues that would have to be solved. But when you consider how much subsidies go into the agrochemically uh, generated and produced food in our country right now, it would be really curious to think about how much. Um, how far that would go if we were subsidizing organic farmers that way. And one on one other note, Dana, and you know, not and um, I mean, I'm a healthcare provider. I'm all for educating my colleagues. Um, because of my long history in this field and working with moms mostly, and I say moms because moms tend to take care of children. And in my practice, I saw very few dads, although they are involved. That um, I personally am going mom to mom. And that I've given up somewhat, and this this may sound a bit pessimistic, um, but may, I'm, I like to think it's more realistic on educating my colleagues. But I focus on and what is what I've been trained to do and dedicate my career to is educating families. And I really spend a lot of time on talking to the women who are caring for these children. And so I believe that will be the impetus to change are these moms. And Vincent and I have a whole chapter called Warrior Moms in the book. Because and as a shout out to these women who are um, who have who are so courageous dealing with being marginalized and having their their um, their their theories of doctors rolling their eyes all the time it's awful um, and so that is where I am putting my energy on onto that community. Well, thank you so much for that. Um, we've taken up. A lot of both of your times today. Uh, I want to thank you for that, uh, for being so generous and talking about the book. Um, I just want to ask one final question um, about what's next um, for this work. For you, I mean, in particular. Yeah. Um, so for me, I am executive director of www.gmoscience.org, uh, and we are a group of really smart and caring uh, folks who are who, who bring to light the uh, issue regarding GMOs, uh, GMOs, their associated pesticides, and health. And we're a science-based uh, website um, focused on bringing that to light. And that's one thing that we're looking at. Um, and for me as well, um, I'm heading in toward the area of migrant farm worker children and their health, which is a whole nother uh, show that you can do, Dana, um, and the issues that they're having. So that's where um, I'm heading um, literally as we speak to work on uh, migrant farmer worker children health. That's And then Vincent's got some cool stuff going on. Yeah, so I'm going in two directions, you know, in addition to my regular job. <laughs> but in terms of my research and teaching, one is, again, trying to develop a medical school elective course on food health relationships or rethinking these relationships in what we're calling the Anthropocene, the era of man-made climate um, change and, and, uh, and really climate, potentially climate collapse. 
So really trying to trace out all of these connections, looking at the science that we know about food nutrition, gut health, and food supply. Um, that's one direction, and that's the practical teaching direction. Um, and then the other is a more uh, academic pursuit, which is the book, the spinoff book from this for me, is the book that really goes more deeply into what has been called the end of expertise. Um, I think the GM food debate intersects very interestingly with, con- with other theories about um, fake news or fake science um, or uh, you know, anti-science. One, the tobacco, his- the history of tobacco, it, it actually parallels that history. Um, and yet I think there's a lot of mainstream um, rhetoric about how people who are invested in the, the non-GMO movement are like uh, climate science deniers. And so there's a really interesting story about how we may be coming, and other people are writing about this too, um, to the ends of expertise. So science is, is in a predicament around the truth. And I'm really curious to write more about that and talk about how this debate weaves itself through that. And then the comparative or the the sort of dovetail from that is it takes me to this other area of what's happening in medicine around the uh, collapse of what we might call the grand narrative, where people are, um, uh, you know, questioning scientific truth in medicine um, and going their own pathway and seeking out um, uh, healers and, and alternatives that may or may not be qualified. For instance, you know, Michelle's a highly qualified uh, trained doctor who, who selects very carefully the techniques that she wants to use and then really studies what she's doing as she's doing it with her patients and comes to some pretty amazing conclusions and has developed an incredibly powerful and effective clinical practice. Um, but there are a lot of other people who are uh, peddling all kinds of theories about <laughs> medicine and curing and diet and other things. And there's just this sea of confusion about it. And I'm really fascinated with the predicament that we're in around that without making any judgment about whether it's good or bad. I'm just very curious about it. And so I'm kind of approaching it ethnographically as the follow-up to the predicament of uh, science, of that science has gotten itself into is that we're facing a similar kind of dilemma in medicine itself. And this journey is partly taking me back to some of the early debates about the, uh, the, the scientists who were involved in creating GMO uh, technologies for food supply and looking carefully at what they were thinking they were doing and where the limits of the effect of these foods would be in an ecosystem or ecological models. So anyway, that's my next project but it's, it's going to be a year or two before I get that <laughs> going fully. It all sounds fabulous, um, both of you. I can't wait to follow up and see where it all goes. Um, I want to thank you again so much for joining us on New Books in Medicine, a channel on the New Books Network of podcasts. Uh, and I'll catch you guys later. Thanks. Bye. Thanks for having us, Dana. Thank you, Dana. That wraps it up for New Books in Medicine. I hope you enjoyed the discussion with Dr. Pero and Dr. Adams on what's making our children sick. Again, you can follow us on Twitter at New Books Med or find me, your host, Dana Greenfield, at Dana G. Field. Let us know what you're reading or what you want to read or any feedback you have for us. Bye.